Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the September 2018 issue of Heart Rhythm. The featured article this month is titled Role of Obstructive Sleep Apnea on the Response to Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy and All-Cause Mortality. This article was authored by Shanta et al. from University of Iowa. A video author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The authors analyzed records of 548 consecutive patients who received a CRT defibrillator device. Among them, 180 patients, or 33%, had obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA. The results show that the presence of OSA is associated with a decreased response to CRT and an increase in all-cause mortality in patients with heart failure. However, this effect was primarily seen in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, while presence of OSA was not a significant predictor of CRT non-response or mortality in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. The results are clinically important because the hazard ratio for all-cause mortality was as high as 4.2 in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with versus without OSA. However, these results will need confirmation by a prospective study. This issue of the journal focuses on atrial fibrillation. The first article within this focus is titled Sleep Characteristics That Predict Atrial Fibrillation by Christensen et al. from UC San Francisco. They studied data from three independent sources and found that sleep disruption was consistently associated with prevalent and incident atrial fibrillation. The hazard ratio for insomnia was of a similar magnitude as the hazard ratios for smoking and obstructive sleep apnea. This effect may be explained by a reduction in REM sleep which in turn may cause autonomic dysfunction. Given the high prevalence of sleep problems and the substantial negative impacts of atrial fibrillation, research examining interventions to improve sleep quality may prove valuable in preventing atrial fibrillation. Next up is characterization of drivers maintaining atrial fibrillation by Honabakshi et al. from Barth's Heart Center, London, United Kingdom. The authors mapped persistent atrial fibrillation with a 64-pole basket caster to identify and ablate drivers with rotational or focal activity after pulmonary vein isolation. All 29 patients had greater than or equal to one driver identified. Among 44 total drivers, 39 drivers responded to ablation by termination or slowing. 
These 39 drivers included 23 rotational and 16 focal drivers. These drivers consistently correlated to organization markers. Greater temporal stability and organization predict predicted atrial fibrillation termination with driver ablation. Interestingly, all drivers identified before PV isolation were also identified after PV isolation without significant changes of their characteristics. These findings suggest that using advanced mapping techniques, it is possible to discover spatially conserved drivers as a target for ablation. A main limitation is the lack of long-term follow-up and a small number of patients studied. Chang et al. of Princess Margaret Hospital, Kowloon, Hong Kong, wrote the following study titled Effectiveness of Non-Governmental Organization-Led Large-Scale Community Atrial Fibrillation Screening Program Using the Smartphone Electrocardiogram. Atrial fibrillation screening was performed using a smartphone-based ECG in 11,574 participants. Among them, 244 participants, or 2.3%, had atrial fibrillation and were advised telephonically by a nurse to seek medical attention. Newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation was found in 74 participants with a mean CHAS2-DS2 VASC score of 3.9. Half of them were asymptomatic. The authors conclude that this non-governmental organization led community-based atrial fibrillation screening program is effective in identifying citizens with previously undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. If coupled with effective medical care, this new technology may reduce atrial fibrillation-related complications, such as stroke. A weakness is a lack of long-term follow-up data to support the clinical impact of these discoveries. The next article is Thoracoscopic Stapler and Loop Technique for Left Atrial Appendage Closure in Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation by Otsuka et al., Tokyo Metropolitan Tama Medical Center, Japan. The authors retrospectively identified 201 patients operated on in the past 10 years with endoscopic stapler and ligation loops. The mean age was 74 years and the mean CHAS2-DS2 VASC score was 4.1 plus minus 1.4. After a mean of four years of follow-up, only two patients developed cardiogenic thromboembolism. The authors conclude that their thoracoscopic split stabler and loop technique swiftly, safely, and completely closed LA appendages in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation and provided acceptable midterm prevention without anticoagulation. A limitation is the retrospective study design and that all surgeries were done by the same experienced surgeon. A multicenter prospective study will be needed to confirm these results. 
If confirmed, this technique may prove an alternative to oral anticoagulation in selected patients. Coming up next is an article titled Feasibility, Safety, and Efficacy of a Novel Pre-Shipped 1900 Esophageal Deviator to Successfully Deflect the Esophagus and Ablate Left Atrium Without Esophageal Temperature Rise During Atrial Fibrillation Ablation by Parikh et al. from University of Kansas. The authors inserted the esophageal deviator in 209 patients during AF ablation. They also performed propensity score matching to obtain 180 patients each in the esophageal deviation and the non-esophageal deviation arms. They found that mechanical displacement of the esophagus with an esophageal deviator seems to be feasible, safe, and efficacious in enabling adequate radiofrequency energy delivery to the posterior wall of the left atrium without significant luminal esophageal temperature rise and obvious clinical signs of esophageal injury. However, this study included only a small number of patients and the routine endoscopy was not performed. Whether or not this new technology will prevent atrial esophageal fistula remains unknown. The next article is Arterial Hypertension Drives Arrhythmia Progression via Specific Structural Remodeling in a Porcine Model of Atrial Fibrillation by Manager et al. from Medical University of Graz, Austria. The authors aim to study the mechanisms by which arterial hypertension contributes to the progression of atrial fibrillation. They use the PIT model. The atrial fibrillation was reduced by rapid pacing, and hypertension was induced by desoxycorticosterone acetate, or DOCA, D-O-C-A. They found that induced hypertension increases AF stability, concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, atrial dilatation, and fibrosis. However, the EP parameters such as ERP, APD conduction velocity, and AF complexities were comparable between groups with or without hypertension. A three-dimensional computational model confirmed an increase in AF stability observed in the in vivo experiments associated with increased atrial size. The authors conclude that in this model of secondary hypertension, higher AF stability after two weeks of rapid atrial pacing is mainly driven by atrial dilatation. <laughs> These findings are consistent with the clinical association between atrial size and atrial fibrillation in humans. They also suggest that the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists might be useful not only in preventing development, but also in slowing progression of atrial fibrillation. A primary limitation of animal studies is that the AF was induced by rapid pacing. It may not completely reproduce the phenotypes of human atrial fibrillation. The following article is a review titled Racial and Ethnic Differences in the Prevalence, Management, and Outcomes in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation by Wu Gowei et al. from Duke University. The authors aimed 
to assess the racial and ethnic differences in the epidemiology, management, and outcomes of patients with atrial fibrillation. They included 64 studies in their review. They found that underrepresented racial and ethnic groups have a higher prevalence of established risk factors associated with the development of atrial fibrillation, but an overall lower incidence and prevalence of AF as compared with non-Hispanic whites. Moreover, racial and ethnic differences exist in detection awareness and AF-associated symptoms. Non-white populations also experience decreased use of rhythm control modalities and anticoagulation for stroke prevention. Lastly, among those with atrial fibrillation, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups had increased morbidity and mortality relative to white groups. This information is important to ensure the di uh, delivery of high-quality care that prevents stroke, reduces death, and decreases expenses associated with caring for underrepresented populations with atrial fibrillation. Next up is cryo-balloon uh, cryo best practices 2, practical guide to procedural monitoring and dosing during atrial fibrillation ablation from the perspective of experienced users. This review was written by Sue et al. from Banner University Medical Center, Phoenix, Arizona. This is part two, continuing on from part one that was previously published in the journal three years ago by the same group of authors. This manus the manuscripts includes a, compre a comprehensive literature re review, along with uh, practical usage guidance from physicians using the cryo balloon to facilitate safe, efficient, and effective outcomes for patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing ablation. This issue also contains some articles not focused on atrial fibrillation. The first one is titled Endocardial Ablation of Ventricular Ectopic Beads Arising from the Basal Inferoceptal Process of the Left Ventricle by Lee et al. from St. George's University of London. Out of 425 patients from three medical centers, 7 or 1.5% had a site of origin from the inferoceptal process of the left ventricle, or ISP-LV. Common ECG findings were a right bundle branch block concordant pattern or an atypical left bundle branch block early transition pattern, suggestive of basal origin with a left superior axis, a biphasic QRS in lead AVR, and a small S-wave in lead V6. Earliest activation was seen in an area below the outflow tract accessed from inferoceptal recess inferior to the his bundle. In three cases, transient junctional rhythm was seen during ablation. The authors conclude that the ventricular activity arising from the ISP-LV represents a distinct subset of idiopathic arrhythmia and can be successfully treated by endocardial castor ablation from the inferoceptal recess. They share common surface ECG and the electrophysiological findings with septal anatomical features that need recognition for successful castor ablation. Next up is accelerometer-based atrial ventricular synchronous pacing 
with a ventricular headless pacemaker by Chinese et al. from NYU Lagoon Medical Center, New York. This study included 64 patients from the microatrial tracking using a ventricular accelerometer or MARVEL study. The implanted device uses information obtained from accelerometer to time ventricular pacing, thus achieving AV synchrony. Patients' pacemakers were implanted for a median six months. High-degree AV block was present in 33 patients, where 31 had predominantly intrinsic conduction during the study. Average AV synchrony during AV algorithm pacing was 87%. AV synchrony was significantly greater during AV algorithm pacing compared to VVI mode in high-degree AV block patients, whereas AV synchrony was maintained in patients with intrinsic conduction. The authors conclude that accelerometer-based atrial sensing is feasible and significantly improves AV synchrony in patients with AV block and a single-chamber needless pacemaker implanted in the right ventricle. However, a limitation of the study is the lack of long-term follow-up information to determine whether or not this new algorithm improves the clinical outcomes of patients with needless pacemakers. The following article is titled Clinical and Electrophysiological Characteristics of Patients with Paroxysmal Intrahis Block with Narrow QRS Complexes, written by Raghupathy et al., Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, Philadelphia. The authors retrospectively identified patients with narrow QRS complexes and documented the intrahis delay or block at electrophysiology study, which is group A, or with electrocardiogram documented Mobius 2 AV block or paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and that was the group B. There were 12 patients in group A and 11 in group B. Among them, 21 or 23 presented with syncope or presyncope. After a median follow-up of 6.4 years, the median percentage of ventricular pacing was 1%. Only one patient developed true pacemaker dependency. The authors conclude that patients who present with syncope and narrow QRS complexes with intrahist delay or Mobius II paroxysmal AV block with narrow QRS complexes rarely progress to pacemaker dependency and require only infrequent pacing. This information suggests that a single-chamber pacemaker may be sufficient for these patients. The results of this study also suggests that his bundle recording prior to pacemaker implantation might be useful in some patients. The latter hypothesis can only be tested by a prospective study. Next up is experience with the wearable cardioverter defibrillator in older patients by Dami et al. from University of Rochester. The patients meeting the following criteria were included in this registry. Number one, low ejection fraction was 40 days within 40 days after myocardial infarction or within three months after coronary revascularization. Number two, new onset dilated non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Or number three, low ejection fraction and inherited or congenital heart disease. 
a total of uh, uh, 1,732 patients were stratified into two subgroups by age. Those of age greater than two or equal 65 years and those with age less than six, 65 years. Daily wear time was longer in the older population who also experienced higher event rates. At the end of the wearable cardioverter defibrillator use, ICD implantation was more frequent in older patients. These findings show that older patients had good compliance with the wearable cardioverter defibrillator presented with more frequent ventricular arrhythmias and were more likely to receive an ICD. The authors suggest that the wearable cardioverter defibrillator may play a role in risk stratification of the older population. However, because this is an observational study with voluntary participation from the study subjects, this data cannot be used to determine if routine use of wearable cardioverter defibrillator in at-risk elderly can prevent sudden death. Coming up is a paper titled Needless Pacemaker versus Transvenous Single-Chamber Pacemaker Therapy, a propensity score-matched analysis by Joan et al. from Academic Medical Center, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. 220 Needless Pacemaker patients were propensity score-matched to 200 transvenous VVIR pacemaker patients from a pacemaker registry. The complication rate at 800 days of follow-up was 0.9% in the leaders group versus 4.7% in the transvenous group when excluding pacemaker advisory-related complications. However, when including pacemaker advisory-related complications, the complication rate at 800 days increased to 10.9% in the leaders group versus 4.7% in the transvenous group with a p-value of 0.063. This study reveals favorable compilation rate, complication rates for leaders compared to transvenous single-chamber pacing therapy at midterm follow-up in a propensity score-matched cohort. When including pacemaker advisory-matched com uh, related complications, this advantage is no longer observed. The pacemaker advisory mentioned in the study is related to a specific battery failure issue and is expected not to be inherent to the leader's pacing concept and to be resolved in the near future. If that is in fact the case, then future studies may show that leader's pacemakers have a lower complication rate than transvenous pacemakers. Mikowitz et al. from Tel Aviv University, Israel, wrote the following article titled Fever-Related Arrhythmic Events in the Multicenter Survey on Arrhythmic Events in Bugatta Syndrome. In 35 of 588 patients, or 6%, with available information, the arrhythmia event occurred during a febrile illness. Most of the 35 patients were male, Caucasian, and proband. 80% of patients presented with aborted cardiac arrest and 17% with arrhythmic storm. 
the highest population of fever-related arrhythmia events was observed, was observed in the pediatric population with a disproportionately higher event rate in the very young. The authors conclude that the risk of fever-related arrhythmia events in Brugada syndrome markedly varies according to the age group, sex, and ethnicity. Taking these factors into account could help the clinical management of patients with Brugada syndrome with fever. Specifically, the authors suggest a lower threshold for in-hospital observation in Brugada syndrome-affected children who are Caucasian and five years or younger. In comparison, a different policy may apply to Asian children who had a very low incidence of fever-induced arrhythmias based on case reports. It is unclear if there is a true difference or whether there is an under-reporting of this phenomenon among Asians. It is also possible that antipyretic medications are more liberally used for childhood fever in Asian countries than in the West, but that is based only on my personal experience. Next paper is titled Predicting Basal Vagal Syncope from Heart Rate and Blood Pressure by Virag et al. from Medtronic Europe, Switzerland. The authors previously developed a basal vagal syncope prevention algorithm for use during head-up tilt with simultaneous analysis of heart rate and the systolic blood pressure. They showed in a retrospective cohort that their algorithm had a high sensitivity and specificity. They now tested the algorithm prospectively 140 subjects and found it to be highly sensitive. Medium prediction time is 1 minute 25 seconds, which could allow the patient sufficient time to take evasive action. A limitation that may prevent its clinical application is the difficulty of continuously recording blood pressure in ambulatory patients. Coming up next is a paper titled Beyond the Lens and Look of Repolarization, defining the non-QTC electrocardiographic profiles of patients with congenital long QT syndrome by Lane et al. from Mayo Clinic. The authors performed a retrospective review of 943 patients with long QT syndrome. They found that 34% had bradycardia regardless of beta blocker use. T-wave inversion involving these V1 and V3 was more common in long QT2 uh, patients compared with long QT syndrome type 1 or type 3, whereas T-wave inversion in these 3 and AVF was most common in long QT syndrome type 3. Notched T-waves were most apparent at younger ages. These findings indicate that beyond the QT interval and the bradycardia, ECG abnormalities are uncommon in long QT syndrome patients, and the patients almost never have concomitant bundle branch block. Notably, 19% of long QT syndrome patients overall and 27% of long QT syndrome type 2 patients exhibit anterior T-wave inversion that would satisfy a diagnostic criterion for arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy thus creating the potential for diagnostic miscuses. On the positive side, the genotype-specific features identified by this study may help guide and interpret genetic testing, 
which can help anticipate and initiate tailored therapies while awaiting test results. Next up is safety and efficacy of uh, stereotactic radioablation targeting pulmonary vein tissues in an experimental model by Zai et al. from Brigham Women's Hospital, Boston. Stereotactic radioablation is a commonly used therapy to treat malignant tumors and has been used to treat refractory ventricular tachycardia. The authors evaluated the safety and efficacy of stereotactic radioablation targeting pulmonary vein untrod tissues as a potential therapy for atrial fibrillation. They studied seven adult canines and two swine. They found this method to be safe and effective for creating precise circumferential scar and electrical isolation of the right superior pulmonary vein in an experimental model. The limitation of this technique is that it is not precise, uh, presently feasible to ablate other PVs. In addition, whether it could cause PV stenosis during long-term follow-up remains unknown. Vijay Yaraman of uh, Geisinger Heart Institute, Pennsylvania, wrote a hands-on article titled Approach to Permanent His Bundle Pacing in Challenging Implants. The paper provided detailed instructions that may improve the success rate of permanent his bundle pacing. This is followed by a point of view article by Dr. Benjamin Sh uh, Sherlock of Oklahoma University titled Roads Less Traveled Colon My Journey Through Electrophysiology and Beyond. This is one of a series of invited articles written by senior investigators about their personal career journey. We will publish another one next month by Dr. Mel Scheinman from UC San Francisco. In addition to the above articles this month, the journal also publishes four EP News articles and two letters to editors. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Harvard, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pinxian Chen.